This is the new Criterion. I'm James Pinero, Executive Editor. From a letter to the Board of Trustees of the Whitney Museum, dated July 25th, 2019, I quote, The power of art lies in its ability to express, to push boundaries, and to ask questions. Art, as I know it, is not intended to force one-sided answers or to suppress independent thinking. And yet, these recent events have illustrated how a single narrative, created and sustained by groups with a much larger and more insidious agenda, can overwhelm that spirit. And this letter goes on. The politicized and oftentimes toxic environment in which we find ourselves across all spheres of public discourse, including the art community, puts the work of this board in great jeopardy. Signed, Warren B. Canders, who was, until July 25th, Vice Chairman of the Board of Trustees of the Whitney Museum, here pushed out after concerted effort and protest by artists associated with the latest Whitney Biennial. Here to discuss this and other museum matters in what we're calling Nightmare at the Museum is Andrew Shea, Assistant Editor of the New Criterion. Andy, welcome. Thanks. Andy, for our listeners, what is the Whitney Museum and what is the Whitney Biennial? So the Whitney Museum of American Art is located here in New York City uh, in Lower Manhattan. It was founded in 1930 by the heiress Gertrude Vanderbilt Whitney, who is also an art patron, collector, and a sculptor herself. Whitney's collection comprised largely of uh, turn-of-the-century turn American avant-garde art, which at the time was seen as less important than uh, its European counterpart. When she offered to donate these uh, 500 of these works to the Met, the museum declined the gift, so she started her own museum that would focus exclusively on American art. As part of its efforts to engage with contemporary art, the Whitney holds a biennial exhibition of living artists held, as its name suggests, every other year. The event started as an annual exhibition just two years after the museum's founding in 1932, but switched to its biennial format in 1973. Today, the exhibition is usually organized by guest curators, and it often includes younger and emerging artists that the commercial market has yet to pick up. The Whitney Biennial is typically regarded as the most prestigious of its kind, and has been something of a career maker for countless artists throughout its history. As such, it is often also the source of great consternation and controversy, and has been more or less throughout its history. All right, so we have Vanderbilt uh, from a family that built its uh, revenue from the railroads and other industries, uh, somewhat funding an institution that was a bit of a protest institution. And I think that has always been a bit part of the DNA of the Whitney, um, standing kind of against the other New York institutions, especially the Museum of Modern Art. And the biennial has come to represent that. Um, Often it frustrates more than it illuminates. The 1993 biennial was an incredibly politicized biennial. We wrote about it here at New Criterion. Uh, it was kind of the first identity politics biennial. And so we've come to expect kind of progressive leftist agenda from the Whitney Biennial for decades. 
But what's interesting here, Andy, is that the protests came from artists against the Whitney. So we have, let's say, progressive left left leaning artists who are protesting against this supposedly progressive left leaning institution. What do you make of that? Uh, well, I think your point is good that the distinction between this uh, current controversy and previous ones is that the artists who are making the protest have actually been included in the exhibition itself. And, and what was their complaint exactly? Well, their complaint was that the vice chairman of the board of trustees of the museum, Warren Canders, is a part owner, I believe, um, of a company that produces defense and uh, riot control gear, which also includes tear gas canisters um, that have been used on the Mexican-U.S. border. And so what happened is artists kind of zeroed in on Candor's company, Safari Land, I think it's called, yes. which is a maker of um, bulletproof vests, tear gas, uh, and other military supplies, and began a concerted protest effort to have him removed from the board of trustees. Is that right? And they threatened to remove their own artwork. Well, the there, there was initially one artist that decided not to have his piece included in the exhibition originally. His name was Michael Rakowitz. Um, he was the only artist actually that from the get go pro- made a protest decision not to include his art. Um, but there had, there have been protests, weekly protests in the lobby of the Whitney um, demanding Candor's re- resignation. Yes. Okay. And yet the the board stuck by him. Adam Weinberg, the director of the museum, stood by him. The board even a month ago reappointed him to the board. And yet Candor's felt compelled to resign through this letter. Why should we care? What does this signal? Does it mean something more than just politics at the Whitney? Uh, well, I think a lot of people are bringing the point up that this is yet another example of uh, what we might consider perhaps the new left uh, against the old left. Uh, Candor's himself is of his historically mixed um, patronage towards political causes, but more recently has given to polit- Democratic political candidates. Um, as a trustee of the museum, you can understand that he would be inclined towards the liberal politics of the museum generally. But I think these most recent protests are uh, representative of perhaps a much more radical, uh, perhaps more grassroots um, leftism that is interestingly attacking its own in a way. Yeah, I think you're right. I think it is the new left versus the kind of neoliberal establishment. Uh, I think it's a crisis for neoliberalism for people observing it. Um, It's a signal moment for neoliberalism. I think the Whitney has tended to represent neoliberalism. And what do I mean by that? I think it's a form of liberalism that often uses the rhetoric of the left, even the radical left, but very often follows the policies of the center, even the right. So you had Canders, who I think would claim to be a progressive. He collects progressive art, Jeff Koons, etc. If you consider him progressive, um, Ed Ruscha, uh, and yet he's someone who has made money off of the military-industrial complex. Uh, for someone like Canders, uh, maybe it shouldn't be a surprise that this is challenged, uh, that it's seen as hypocritical for someone to make their money off of basically capitalist um, programs and, and then to give to a, a left-wing institution. I think the Whitney 
embodied the kind of neoliberal flag waving, and the biennial certainly did, uh, while you had board members who made their money like every other capitalist makes their money. So why should we care that Canders felt the need to resign? Does it look like a victory for the new left? Well, uh, it's interesting. The the time that he resigned happened af- directly after, I think it was eight artists demanded that their pieces be removed from the exhibition um, in continuation of the protests. And I think at that point, Canders kind of realized that if artists are actually going to be taking their work out of the exhibition, then maybe the whole project is... Uh, counterproductive in the project being his continued involvement with the museum. Um, and I think generally this, the, the perhaps more uh, universal point that this question brings up, along with other questions with philanthropy towards museums recently, um, is just that, is the, the system that we have in place in America of private philanthropy um, and whether people who have attained their money through means that are seen as perhaps not progressive or um, counter to progressive movements, whether they're able to then give their their own wealth to these museums as a sort of what they what a progressive might call sort of a band-aid, a moral band-aid on um, their careers and their lives. Yeah, I think it's a, it's a new type of purity litmus test that the new left is trying to impose on nonprofit institutions. It's meant to be a signal to all other institutions, museums, and all forms of nonprofit institutions that were coming for your board members. If they don't live up to our high standards, they're going to be gone. Uh, there's traditionally been a wall uh, between, let's say, the independence of a board and the public that might benefit uh, from their largesse. And I think that wall is being eroded quite actively by these protests. Let me quote to you something that came out from a group called Decolonize This Place, one of the various left-wing protest groups that have been active around museums in addition to Occupy Museums, which is a outgrowth of Occupy Wall Street, Gulf Labor at the Guggenheim Museum. Here's what Decolonize This Place said after the removal they sought of Warren Canders. We know this goes beyond Canders, and I'm quoting... He is a stand-in for an entire system. Toxic philanthropy can no longer be normalized. The landscape is changing, as we can see with the reputation of the Sacklers by the Met, Guggenheim, and Tate. And to continue, Decolonize's Place demands a decolonization commission that would, quote, include community stakeholders and guided by a variety of urgent principles. Indigenous land rights and restitution, reparations for enslavement and its legacies, the dismantling of patriarchy, workplace democracy, degentrification, climate justice, and sanctuary from border regimes and state violence more generally. So you can see, Canders was a target of opportunity. Uh, they succeeded in taking him out, and now this is just the beginning. Right, it doesn't stop at tear gas canisters. So what do you do if you're a board member or a philanthropist? Uh, what are you thinking? Why do you give to the Whitney, for one thing? And, uh, and what do you do if you're looking around to uh, give your money now? Are you thinking twice about a place like the Whitney Museum? Well, uh, it's important to note that Canders himself is a prolific collector of art. As we mentioned, some of his um, favorite artists are sort of also favorites of the Whitney. And so it was sort of a natural fit for him. Um, 
maybe perhaps in terms of the crowd of collectors um, among which he socializes. Um, it's certainly seen as an elite institution, but um, who knows what he'll what he'll want to do with it? I'm sure he's not going to sell all of his art. Um, but yeah, I think I, I I don't think these people you know stop giving entirely. I think they're just going to refunnel their um, their wealth and their donations are going to go towards um, other institutions, perhaps less um, is perhaps institutions that are less willing to accede to the demands of this far. Um, this far left rhetoric. Yeah, I think it could be a threat to neoliberal institutions like the Whitney. Uh, and you may see institutions that are just more openly conservative being the beneficiary of this largesse. Or, or perhaps just less um, explicitly political in the way that the Whitney seems to be. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So an art museum that focuses uh, more on scholarship or more on connoisseurship, perhaps. A more mm-hmm. traditional museum, mm-hmm. not necessarily politically conservative in itself. Why do you think someone like Kanders, let's say, makes his money from munitions or from uh, bulletproof vests and then gives money to the Whitney? Is it a kind of cynical art washing? Some have accused him of art washing. Same with the Sacklers. Uh, they were art washing their Oxycontin money. Right. Uh, right. You know, or, or do these people really believe, do you think? Uh, in their progressive causes, even if they're making it from uh, non-progressive means, and their kind of irrationalism, their hypo- potential hypocrisy, uh, works for them. I'm inclined to believe that it's not a cynical move. Um, it's not um, something where they're, you know, hoping to cover over the deeds that they've done um, for their wealth. I think Candor's most likely actually believes in the mission of the Whitney. Um, it's interesting, actually, to note that we've known about his activities, at least publicly in uh, the journalism world, has known about his activities as a owner of Safari Land, which o- makes the tear gas canisters, since 2015. Um, and it's only been in 2019, this year, that it's become an issue. And I think partially that was because of the connection with the most recent border crisis. Um, but this isn't something that I think he saw as contradictory in itself. Like, if you if you read his resignation letter... Um, he defends his actions. He defends his ownership of Safari Land. He says that it's non-lethal weaponry. Um, he says it actually helps save lives. Um, the use of tear gas canisters as opposed to live bullets, for instance. Um, so I, I think for him, he's not exactly... Um, he doesn't see his own career as at odds with the mission of a place like the Whitney. But perhaps that's changing. Do you think these artists who want to see a $10 million donor be pushed out from an institution they hope to exhibit in uh where do you think that money's going to come from in the future uh, or are they not thinking along those lines is it just kind of a anarchic behavior where it's the desire to tear down institutions rather than build them up in a different way uh perhaps it also perhaps could be just um sort of base revulsion at the idea that someone that they're connected with is connected with um say the current administration um, it may not have sort of that far-reaching implication that you implied, but I think artists, and also interestingly, a big part of this was not just the artists of the Whitney were protesting, but the staff itself. So the people whose paychecks are coming from these sorts of donors are also making uh, the demand that the philanthropy towards the museum be pure. Um, so I think maybe it has less to do with sort of uh, you know tearing down the building and more to do with sort of... Uh, what you might consider like a less than fully thought out thought process.
Do you want to run through a little bit? This is not the first time that uh, there have been protests at the Whitney Biennial. You know, it's interesting. Uh, there was a time when you would have protests over artwork coming from the right. In fact, this very this very magazine was involved in uh, the controversy surrounding uh, Robert Maplethorpe. Uh, we wrote against the 1993 biennial, and yet now it's not uh, the religious right that's um, standing in front of artwork. It's the left, the new left standing in front of artwork as what happened two years ago at the biennial where protesters prevented viewers from seeing a particular painting at the Whitney Biennial. Do you want to mention that? Right. So the 2017 biennial uh, was notable for a protest that surrounded a painting by the Brooklyn artist Dana Schutz, um, which was titled Open Casket. And the painting was derived from the famous photograph of Emmett Till's mangled face and body as he lied in wake after being lynched in Mississippi in 1955. Um, so it's an incredibly charged subject, and Dana Schutz, as a uh, white woman, these protesters claimed, had no right to appropriate the image for her own artistic purposes. And those protesters actually stood in front of the painting. They demanded it to be taken down and actually significantly not to just be taken down from the walls, but to be destroyed entirely. Um, so this was a, a, an example of sort of uh, maybe perhaps the same strain of uh, far leftism advocating for the taking down of art because um, it didn't fit their, I guess, political needs. The taking down of art, the taking down of art trustees, censorship, whatever happened to com concerns about censorship that we always used to hear about is that not a problem anymore yeah i don't know i don't, I don't think i don't think i have an answer for that one <laughs> <laughs> i mean it used to be censorship was something that the the left and the liberals stood up against and yet it seems like now they're the ones censoring uh yeah i mean in in these cases i think that's certainly um something that's been discussed well andy look we're both art critics what were your thoughts on the whitney biennial this year well um i i don't know i mean i'm myself less inclined to be interested in the kinds of art that's generally put on at these ex these sorts of exhibitions i'm a painter myself um the painting that i saw wa wasn't extremely interesting to me uh, a couple were i thought the um nicole eisenman sculptures at the top were interesting but i don't know how you know far-reaching or revelatory they might have been. Nicole Eisenman was a painter and a sculptor who had um, an installation set up on, I think it was the roof or maybe one of the, the decks outside. She was one of actually the artists who demanded, demanded to have her paintings or for her sculptures to be taken away. Um, so they're notable in that sense too. Yeah, was, know, what was, did you think, James? Well, what strikes me is um, it was a bit more spare than in years past. Sometimes it's really kind of overload. This was a quite spare installation. Uh, but what you see re repeatedly is artwork that kind of borrows the forms of modernism, especially Guston and Rauschenberg. So you have kind of painting and installation looking things employed for some point, some usually political point or identity point, And it's kind of processed through that. Uh, you have a lot of Brooklyn based artists doing that now. And it all kind of looks the same. Uh, I wouldn't say it's formally very innovative, but it's kind of tweaking it and using it to say something a little different than what was said 
before. And I think that honestly gets a little dull. It the kind of sort is, of political abstraction. It's like political yeah. abstraction yeah. or uh, political uh, combines, political installations. I do, I do think I always like to point out what I liked. I don't know if you saw this, but Diane Simpson, an artist who was installed in the first floor gallery, uh, very nice, I thought, formalist sculptures, um, made a particle board, mm. very elegantly done, um, supposed to reference, I guess, maybe some uh, dressmaking in some way, but they had a figural, figurative presence to them. Um, I thought that um, Simone Lay. I hope I'm pronouncing that right. Simone Lee. Did you, yeah, I'm not sure actually, yeah. but uh, who I think also has sculptures up now on the High Line, referencing African statuary. Oh, right. yep. Nicely done ceramics uh, has a kind of a classical uh, craftiness to them, which uh, I thought was appealing. John Edmonds also, I thought, had some very nice striking photos of, uh, again, actually of African uh, sculptures, portraits. Um, but those stood out, I think, because they seemed like they had some interesting craft, all of them, whereas a lot of the artwork just looks kind of sloppy. Right. And I mean, this is sort of an old complaint, but a lot of the more conceptual stuff, it really doesn't sort of invite you in the way that uh, traditional art does. And so for maybe the more general viewer, it can kind of come off as baffling. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's that's obviously it's a much kind larger of a language issue. of insiders, art right, world right. insiders this is obviously, a you know. A much larger topic of discussion to be having, but well, uh, we're having it. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Uh, and also, I think one artwork that was talked about a lot was a video that actually was attacking Candor's and Safari Land, or at least doing an analysis of where their their weapons were being employed. Do you want to talk about that? Right. So this that was a. Uh, I think they've been described as a journalist collaborative team. They're called Forensic Architecture, and I believe they're based in. London, um, which is itself sort of interesting as um, having taken part in this exhibition of what it's supposed to be American artists, but that's a side point. Um, so they're, they're this journalistic collaborative team that made a video detailing the uses of Safari Land tear gas grenades, and they uh, use computer processing, some sort of technical development to do um, actually very quite specific research on where those canisters had been deployed, um, who they had been deployed against. Right, so you had an artwork actually already attacking the work of uh, the trustee. Right, so that was that was the sort of explicit um, inside the walls, inside the gallery protest, um, mm-hmm. which hadn't been actually explicitly commissioned as protest art, but the inclusion of those artists, um, there was sort of an implied understanding that they would make some sort of um, statement against Candor's. Do you think this is just the beginning, or is this a kind of one-off, and that'll be it? I mean, it's hard to say. I don't think, I think, you know, based on what you heard decolonize this place, say, after the resignation, they were obviously overjoyed, but um, their message was very clearly that um, their mission is not complete. Um, I think, you know, just with the nature of our philanthropic system, there are going to be plenty more people who don't, whose, whose wealth is tied to some something or other that's not um you know seen as okay i think with the sacklers uh there's been some some recent stuff happening with them in terms of museums saying they're going to no longer accept their philanthropy um so it'll be interesting to see how museums deal with it in terms of their own funding 
it'll be interesting to see how the protesters deal with um, other philanthropists that they discover are doing things they don't like. Right. Yeah. And maybe those philanthropists should just give their money to the Morgan Library and uh, forget it. Yeah, maybe. This has been The New Criterion. I'm James Panero, Executive Editor. I'm joined by Andy Shea, Assistant Editor. And this has been Nightmare at the Museum. You can find The New Criterion Podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, and at newcriterion.com and at ricochet.com. Thank you for joining us. Thanks, Andy. Thanks, James.